Okay, welcome everybody. Welcome to 11th hour. It's 11 o'clock, so we'll start. Um, again, as yesterday, please turn off or silence your cell phone if you have one. Um, and also, it worked pretty well yesterday, but it's a little hard. But I'm going to try to bring the mic around at the end if you have questions. Um, we'll see how that works again today. Okay. Novels feel like marathons. They're long, they're unwieldy, they occasion they're occasionally instruments of great torment. I have friends, some of them in this room, who've been working on novels for six or ten years, and that's just the writing part. Um, the marathon metaphor is apropos, because if you've ever run one, you know how hard it is. But more precisely, you know that you go through mental and physical phases. You feel great through about mile six. Adrenaline pumps through you. You go a bit harder than you should. And then you sort of ease up and get into a rhythm for several miles. And then by about mile 20, you hit a wall. Your body doesn't want to go any further, but there are people cheering you on, and you've come this far already. Knowing what to expect is crucial for mental and physical preparedness. And so today, we're very lucky to have Amy Hassinger walk us through the birth of one novel. Amy earned her MFA from the Iowa Writers' Workshop and serves as a faculty member mentor in the University of Nebraska's low-residency MFA program. She teaches at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of Illinois and leads writing workshops in the Champaign-Urbana area. She is the author of three novels, Nina Adolescence, The Priest Madonna, and the forthcoming After the Dam. Her writing has been translated into several languages and has won awards from Creative Nonfiction, Publishers Weekly, and the Illinois Arts Council. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Writer's Chronicle, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, among others. Please join me in welcoming Amy Hassinger. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, in the back? Okay, good. Well, welcome, and thank you all for coming. Um, thank you, Anna, for that great introduction. The mar- I was just talk- using that um, metaphor the other day in class, so it really, uh, of the novel being a marathon, it's really very true. <coughs> that having never run a marathon myself, but <laughs> what I imagine uh, to be running a marathon to be like. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, the birth of one novel from, from conception to delivery. Um, Books are often compared to babies, I've noticed, and so I actually kind of hesitated to use this title because I felt like I was being a little cliche. This has been done, has been said before, um, but it really is apropos in a lot of ways. Um, Both are long labors of love. Both are uh, creative acts. There's a raising up involved, and um, I think not... uh, uh, you know, there's also an association between books and babies because many uh, women in particular and men are involved in the um, having of children while they're writing some of their, their first books. So they tend to be, you tend to sort of uh, associate them in your mind. I do anyway. <clears throat> so what I'm going to walk you through today are the different stages of this. So sort of the conception of, of this book, the gestation period, um, the, the long uh, research and, and drafting period, and, um, and then, then the, the labor and delivery and the sort of impending sending out into the world uh, of this particular book. And so to begin, I will introduce you to the book. This is it. Uh, this, it's called After the Dam. It's coming out this September. And because um, if I try to describe the book to you without a script. I'm going to stumble and ramble, and I'm going to just read, read you a description here, just to give you a sense of what it's about. <clears throat> While nursing her three-month-old, Rachel Claiborne takes a phone call from her father, who asks Rachel to visit her dying grandmother at her grandmother's lake house, affectionately dubbed The Farm. He suspects Grand's live-in nurse of vying to inherit Grand's property, and he wants Rachel to scout things out. Rachel refuses, initially. She's tired, she's busy with the baby, and she hasn't been to the farm since she and her husband Michael were married up there eight years earlier. Michael, a historian and an expert in Indian land tenure rights, 
believes that since the property originally fell within the boundaries of the neighboring Ojibwe reservation, it should be reservation land. And Rachel's family is white. <clears throat> but Rachel, who grew up summering at the farm, has secretly been longing to return. And now that her beloved grandmother is dying, it feels urgent that she introduce Grand to her baby Deirdre before it's too late. In the dead of night, with Michael still asleep, Rachel slips out of bed and drives north with Deirdre to the farm. Anxious to re-enter the comforting geography of her childhood, she instead finds a changed and changing environment. Grand is frail and occasionally confused. Diane Bishop, Grand's old friend, live-in nurse, and member of the Ojibwe tribe, is now in charge. And Joe Bishop, Diane's son, and Rachel's first and most passionate love, scarred by his service in the Gulf War 13 years earlier, is a potent reminder of Rachel's deepest regret. <clears throat> the past, like a clear-cut forest or a sunken village, is both tantalizingly close and utterly inaccessible. As a steady rain raises the level of the lake and threatens the integrity of the nearby Old Ben Dam, Rachel tries desperately to reclaim the person she once was. Finally, she finds she must let go of the past and face, face the stark present, including her own flawed and fluid self, before she can move forward into the wild geography of the future. Okay, so that's, that's the novel. So let's back up to the very beginning. <laughs> And I'll, I'll try to lead you through some, some of how I, how I got here. This is a picture of what we and my family call the big house or the stone house. Um, it was built in, I think it was 1911, um, on a piece of lakeside property in northern Wisconsin that we call the Point of Pines. And you can see the reason it's called the Point of Pines is it's supposed to have the tallest pines on this particular lake. I think there are a lot of points that actually claim that on this lake, but for some reason this, this point got the name. I've been visiting this house and this land since I was a baby every summer and occasional Christmases or other times of the year. My mother grew up summering here with her four siblings for the entire summer. They would, you know, my grandmother would take them up and they would have kind of a family camp up there. My grandmother's four siblings uh, came up and summered in this house. They all kind of clambered into the house with all of their children, and, um, and as I said, it was kind of like a family camp. So it has a very long history in my family. Um, I'll show you just a few more pictures. Um, so here's, uh, this is actually my son. Many years ago, he's, uh, he's now 10, but he's headed down to the water to, to go in the canoe there. Um, over here is a black bear, <laughs> another family member, uh, checking out the clothespin um, bag. I'm sure it was looking for food, but didn't find any. These are a couple of juvenile eagles. So th there's actually an, an eagle's nest behind the house in one of the pines that's been there for years and years. And it's, it's really extraordinary. Um, the eagles you know, will fly out over the property of the young eagles testing their wings. And um, so here's a couple of them there. And then here's, here's the dock uh, down at sunset. That's not a real owl. That's one of these fake owls that you put on the dock to keep the ducks away. And you can see there are some ducks. Um, <clears throat> so just to give, give you a sense, um, what's next? So my grandmother actually grew up, uh, well, she didn't, she didn't uh, her family didn't um, own the property when she was a child, but she was friends with the people who did. So when she was little, she came to this property. And here's a picture from way back when. I don't know what the exact year is. Maybe it looks like the 20s, um, <clears throat> back when the grass here was still wild. Um, this, I always feel like this has sort of a Gatsby feel to, to you know, this, this picture. Um, this was the original, there was a, an original log cabin on the property, um, and this was it. And this person right here is my grandmother. 
So this was my great-great-grandmother, and these were her, or my grandmother's, uh, few of her siblings. I guess her oldest sister was not in the picture. <coughs> and then uh, one more picture. There's my grandma when she's older, water skiing. Um, so, you know, you can tell that I obviously have a lot of attachment to this place. Um, it, it has been a central feature in my life and in many ways has kind of really shaped who I am. Um, and I have had a lot of admiration for my grandmother. And these things, you know, made their way into the book. <clears throat> and so, you know, it only stands to reason that eventually I would be drawn to, to write a novel about it, being a writer. So how, though, what, what kind of novel would it be and how exactly would it take shape um, was the question. And I have a little old lady named Esther Reed to thank for um, inseminating this uh, particular <laughs> uh, project. Um, Esther was a, an old friend of my grandmother's. She was half blind when I knew her in her uh, early 90s, I think. She would kind of grip your arm when she talked to you. She laughed a lot, and she loved to tell stories. And she had actually grown up nearby um, this, this property um, year-round. Her family had moved up from Minneapolis um, because her brother was suffering from a terrible cough, and the doctor had given them advice to bring him up into, uh, in a place where there was fresh air. And um, so the, the, they, they took a job, her father took a job as a caretaker of um, what was, back then, an actual operating farm. <clears throat> and eventually she married a man named Lawrence, and they bought a small house by the water. And one day she told me a story <clears throat> about how when she was uh, newly married, a young, young woman, um, she was up in their home up there, they hired a guy, an Ojibwe man from the neighboring reservation, to come and do some odd jobs around the place. And the way she spoke about this man, <clears throat> describing his sort of muscular, shirtless body as he was chopping the firewood, kind of floored me. And she, you know, she's this you know, very 90-year-old woman, but it, she was remembering this... Uh, this very powerful memory for her of the lust that she felt for this guy. Um, and also the way she told it, she was kind of looking out into the, the woods right by the house as she spoke, and it was really as if she could see it happening right then. And something about that story stuck with me. Um, I guess I've always been kind of a sucker for gossip and particularly for, uh, you know, forbidden stories of of edgy or forbidden love, and so there you have it. Um, in any case, that was sort of, that was the first spark, I think, that kind of started me going on this story, although I didn't really know it at the time. <clears throat> so there's the conception, okay? Now we'll move into the gestation period. Um, I sat on this very vague, shadowy idea, just a story fragment, really, for years, I was working on other books, other projects, having children, going to grad school, etc. But after I finished my second novel, I kind of felt this pulling me again, and I decided to start exploring it. Now, I wanted to say a word about that because I think that this is a really important stage in the creation of any novel, and that's the, the exploration stage, the stage when you're just learning about the world of the novel that you are creating. Um, and this can take different forms depending on what kind of a book you're writing, but um, often for me it involves a great deal of research uh, combined with some very, very rough drafting, um, trying to figure out, okay, you know, who are my characters, what do I need to know about them in order to write about them with some kind of authority? Um, and so I, I tend to do both in tandem, as well as a lot of listing. You know, I do a lot of listing of things I don't know, things I want to find out about, 
I go through stages of um, scouring library um, databases for books and or you know other kinds of documents that would be interesting to read and then I only get to about maybe a quarter of them <laughs> but somehow the the looking around for what's out there is is feels important to me um, so Esther's story had kind of reintroduced me to attention that I I felt in a kind of a subconscious way uh, while I was summering up up at the Point of Pines, um, between the wealthy white vacationing families and the local people, um, mostly rural, uh, you know, people, poorer people, the people on the reservation, um, there was there was a real disconnect between these two communities. And while I was up there, or not just two, several, I guess, but. While I was up there, I interacted primarily with the members of my family. Certainly as a child, I wasn't really very aware of that. But as I, as I got older, I began to notice. Um, and I'll show you, I want to show you just quickly, let me see if I can get this up quickly, where this is, so you can get a sense of that. So this is La Couture, which is the lake that we're on. This point here is, is the Point of Pines. Let me get rid of this. And then right here, this gray area, is um, the La Couture Reservation. And so you can see, if I zoom in even a little more, if you walk down Schoolhouse Lane here and you take a left about a quarter of a mile um, or even less, eh, it's probably a quarter of a mile, I suppose, is uh, you'll, you'll be on the reservation. <clears throat> as a child, and, or as I, as I grew older, you know, we would go for walks, um, and uh, often we would walk the other way, and there was never really, this was just sort of what we did, there was nothing really spoken about it, although there was, um, there was an issue of, on the reservation, there were... Uh, a lot of loose dogs, so sometimes the dogs would chase you, which is, I think, the primary reason why we walked the other way. But I started to get curious, and I started walking that this way, or this way. Um, and I always felt a little bit like I was kind of crossing into a, another country when I walked that way. Um, and I'm sure that this came from a combination of, you know, subconscious... Uh, prejudices I had about, uh, you know, Indians and the culture, um, but there also was a sense of things being, um, the forests were, were kind of denser, um, there were fewer houses, the houses that were there tended to be uh, poorer. Um, it, it had a different feel um, when, whenever I, I went that way. And it was beautiful. It was, I mean, the whole area is very beautiful. But, um, and again, I just I noticed that kind of disconnect. <clears throat> so anyway, back to the to the exploring the world of the novel. I mean, certainly knowing the place was a huge part of that exploration, but that was not enough. Um, I needed and wanted to learn more about the history of the place. So that's what I set about doing. I read about the history of the settlement of northern Wisconsin, about the betrayal of many of the treaties that the government made with the um, Wisconsin Indian tribes, including the Ojibwe. Um, I read about the sending of, of Indian children to boarding schools as a um, concerted effort to assimilate them, to erase their language and their culture. Uh, so that, you know, the idea was that they could blend in more successfully with white America. Um, but, of course, it was, it, it was extremely traumatic uh, for many of the children who that happened to. They were, their family ties were severed. Um, I read about the sy systematic deforestation of the Northwoods in the late 19th century. Um, there's a lot to find out, and I'll, I'll just show you some, some pictures um, so here in this top left corner is a picture of uh, traditional Ojibwe sugar camp where they're um, boiling the um, sap from the maple trees down. Um, over here, 
uh, are some fishermen on uh, Pokagama Creek, which I'll tell you about in a, a minute, but it's, it's very close to, it's on the, it was on the reservation. Um, down here are a group of loggers, both uh, Ojibwe men and, and white men, um, taking down the trees. And then over here are uh, women harvesting wild rice. So that was a traditional practice. Um, you would, the wild rice would grow up along the banks of the river, and they would um, navigate the canoe alongside of the plants and kind of bend them over the canoe and knock the grains of rice into the canoe. <clears throat> and while I was researching all about this history, I came upon a story that I had never heard before about, uh, that, that took place in this area and that really shocked me. And this is a story of the creation of uh, the Winter Dam. Um, so the dam went in over here. And you can see this, this map shows um, what the original waterways looked like and the wetlands. With the wetlands are the gray area and then the... Um, the black is the rivers and streams and, and lakes there. Um, so this is about 1912, before the dam went in. And again, this is on the reservation. Now let me show you, let me switch over to the map, show you approximately where this is. Uh, so again, here's where our place was, here is the border of the reservation, and then if you head over this way, this is the Chippewa flowage. And right over here is where that, this, is, this was the, approximately the place that we were just looking at on that map. So that's about where that dam is. So it's not on the, the same lake, but it's a, a neighboring flowage. <clears throat> Go back here. And the story of this dam um, was that the, a power company, I believe they were, it was called the Northern Lights Power Company, um, decided that this would be a good place for a dam for hydroelectric uh, electric power. Um, and they tried for years and years to convince the tribe that this would be a good idea. Uh, the tribe resisted again and again and again. They did not want the dam. It was going to flood out hundreds of acres of, of their territory. Uh, but of course, the power company was determined. And uh, finally, in 1920, Congress passed the Federal Water Power Act, which basically made it legal for the power company to go in and, and just take the the land, and as long as they uh, compensated in some way the people who, who lived there and who would be affected, which they promised to do by building new homes and new roads and, you know, kind of talked it up really nicely, but of course they didn't really carry through on uh, all of their promises, only partially. <clears throat> and so there were quite a few people displaced. Um, there were the wild, many of the wild rice beds were flooded out. Uh, it, it was, I think, over 500 acres that um, were inundated. And ancient thousands of graves and ancient graves were, um, were covered over by, this, by the flowage. And it was really a very traumatic event for the members of the tribe. Um, you know, they, they lost this property, and with it they lost much of their culture and their, um, their practices, the traditional practices. I won't say much of their culture, but you know, an important piece of who they were in this land. So, um, let, me, let me see. So this, you know, I mean, it's a, a, a sad, a uh, very sad and unfortunately very old and familiar story. Um, but once I learned this story, I knew that it was going to some, somehow have something to do with, with my book because it spoke somehow, again, to that in inherent tension that I felt 
uh, up there. One more picture I want to show you. This is a picture here. So the dam went in in 1923, and uh, you know the floodwaters started to rise, and here it, the, the, the flowage is um, starting to come up over the, the edge of the jailhouse there. Down here, this was a, a day school. This is 1895 uh, that the government uh, put in. Then that was also covered um, by the, the flowage, by the waters. <clears throat> so again, so I was, I I knew this would somehow feature. I didn't know exactly how. So I had to go into you know my drafting. Uh, and of course, this is a very messy, very trial and error kind of process. Um, at first, I thought I wanted to have a historical element in this novel because obviously his, the history here was so important. Um, and I tried and tried to approach that from different angles, and nothing really seemed to be working. So I eventually abandoned that idea. Um, my children, as I mentioned, uh, were young at the time, and um, my son actually, the novel is actually as old as my son, who is 10, <laughs> okay? Um, so uh, the, you know, I was, my mind, I was very uh, focused on babies and, and children, and, and so that thread made its way into the novel. Um, <clears throat> Esther's story was still there way at the back of my mind, and uh, so that, that kernel kind of made its way in as well. And my grandmother, my extraordinary grandmother, who, um, who died, uh, she, she suffered from a, um, a benign uh, brain tumor at the sort of uh, base of her skull that had to be removed, and, and she survived that operation, but her decline was pretty um, steady after that point, and so I kind of watched this decline. And as that happened, um, she had a, um, she, well, she had a series of sort of healthcare workers that would help her, but I, there was one woman in particular who, a very kind woman who stuck with me, and, uh, and she kind of made her way into the novel, although the nurse in the novel is very different than, than the actual person that I remembered. So, you know, I'm not going to bore you with all of the vicissitudes of the drafting process. You all know a lot about that, what that's like. Suffice it to say, it was very long and arduous. Um, it the drafting did take me, I think, about seven years, start to finish. Um, and I just did want to give one word of warning, which is one of the reasons that it took me so long was that I kept shooting myself in the foot with this book. I kept, uh, every time I'd, I'd sort of get I don't know, about 50, 70 pages in, and I get some new idea about what I wanted the book to do. <clears throat> and I'd say, oh, God, all right, well, I don't want to go all the way through this. I'm going to go back to the beginning and put this new idea in now, because I know how to do this already, right? I already wrote two novels, so, you know, I don't have to bother with going all the way through the end. Well, that was the wrong thing to do. <laughs> um, because I, really what I was trying to do, I was trying to control the material too tightly too early on. And, um, and by doing that, I, I basically blocked myself again and again. And uh, so I, I really I encourage you, you know, to just, even if you, you know what you're writing is crap, you know, or you know that you're going to make some change that um, is going to change a lot from the trajectory that you've started, uh, I would encourage you to keep going anyway, and to, and to keep a separate file where you make notes to yourself about, okay, when I go back, I'm going to make this change, I'm going to, you know, I have this idea, maybe I'll try this out, but not to interrupt yourself again and again, which is what I did. Now, who knows? Maybe that's the way this book had to come out for whatever reason. I don't know. But, um, but it did, it, it was part of the agony of the drafting process for me. <clears throat> But uh, as my husband will tell you, I'm a very stubborn person. <laughs> so I didn't give up. I marched myself all the way through that agony until eventually I did get to the other side and, and had a draft. Um, and then you go through that process of gaining distance from that draft 
and then going back in. And you know, it's a, it's a process of sharing it with other people who can help you get some of that distance, um, of taking time away from it, of maybe even starting a new shorter project in between uh, dives into the draft so that you can kind of get your head out of this particular project for a while. Um, but you know, that's, that's how you go, sort of back, you know, you back up and then you dive back in again and again, refining and refining until you finally have something that you feel is finished. And so I, I, I did that and finally, you know, I did have something. Um, okay, so that's the gestation period. And now we're moving on to the, um, the very labored uh, delivery process. <laughs> Um, so I sent the book to my agent, who already had seen several copies of it and had given me feedback several times. And uh, she put together a list of maybe 10 to 15 editors at um, big New York houses to uh, send the book out to. Now, I need to give you some context. So my first two novels were published by Putnam. Um, they did not sell well, these, two, these first two novels. So Putnam was not very happy with me. Um, but we did have to go to them first because there was a clause in the contract that, um, where they had the first right of refusal. Uh, so as we expected, they read the book, gave a you know, polite rejection, and, and then we moved on. Um, the short version of, of this part of the story is that the book was roundly rejected in the first, ra- in the first go-round. But the interesting thing is that many of the rejections were um, these, you know, kind of very positive. They were sort of glowing rejections. So I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to share with you a few of these. Oops. Oh, here's another image. This is uh, this is the dam when it was being built, 1922, and here's the finished dam in in 23. Northern States Power. That's what it was called. Okay, so here's one rejection. This came from a um, senior ed- really well-respected senior editor at Little Brown. I'm not going to read it aloud because <laughs> you can just read it to yourselves. <clears throat> okay, so these were hard letters to get. You know, they were, um, I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's great, right? I mean, many of you know already that there's kind of a... Um, that there's the way that we perceive rejections uh, is shaded, right? So, we're, I mean, we're in the business of, of getting rejections. That's just part of being a writer. It's very normal. And, uh, you know, the, maybe the, the sort of low tier here is the complete, uh, somebody just completely ignoring you. <laughs> that happens. Uh, you have the, the second tier, which is that's the form letter that, you know, is a, a polite no thank you. And then if you get to this third tier, which is, uh, you know, a personal note, and somebody really takes the time to explain to you how they responded to the book, that's a good thing. That's, that's really good information for you. Um, I mean, one, you should treat it as a kind of success. And two, uh, you might want to listen, um, you know, in, especially if you're getting several rejections that are kind of restating the same themes. That, that's often a cue that there's, there is something there. Um, but that was not really the case for these rejections we were getting. They tended to be, um, like I said, you know, very positive, but the, the editor would come around to some other reason why they couldn't take it. And certainly, I'm sure, a large factor in that was that my first books had done so poorly. And you know, some people were more f- upfront about about uh, that being a factor, and others were not. Um, so, luckily, this was a very lucky thing. My um, agent uh, was friends with an editor at Norton, who graciously gave me an hour of her time on the phone, and talked through with me her response uh, to the book. And what she said really rang true for me. Um, she, she actually said she wanted more backstory. She wanted to know more about uh, Rachel and her love relationships earlier in life with Michael and with Joe. So after that conversation and after this, you know, this first round um, didn't work out, 
I went back into the book and revised. And in fact, what I did was I added 100 pages to the book. Um, the, the, whole, the, the book is actually divided into five books, and the whole second book is this backstory of Rachel's uh, earlier relationships, or the, the kind of beginnings of both of those relationships. Um, and this was in response to that, the editor's comments. Okay, so a year later, <laughs> we're going back out, and guess what? More rejections! Here we go! <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I was talking with Sands last night about how editors seem to have this favorite phrase, I'm going to step aside, you know, as if there are these hordes of people rushing and they will just allow the people to, to come forward. Uh, and here, here's another. So, you know, again, we were getting, we were getting these rejections. Um, this second round, though, my, my agent went to both big houses and small presses. Um, and one of these smaller presses, an, an independent press called Red Hen Press, uh, was looking more promising because, um, part of the reason was because uh, the editor had heard me read from the book. Uh, she and I teach together in Nebraska, and I had been reading from the book you know, as I was drafting it there for years, and she uh, was always quite interested in the book. And so I, I actually asked my agent to send it to her, which she did, even though um, there was not a lot of money involved. So my agent really, you know, was being um, very gracious herself to do this. And, uh, and she finally, they, they're the ones who finally took the book. Um, but she did want me to make, make a change of the ending, which I was willing to do, and in fact, I think it makes it a, a better book, her suggestion. And they also wanted to know what I was going to do to promote the book. So this is a big question, um, in particular for smaller presses who don't have a lot of resources to do book promotion. They really want the author to be very involved in that aspect of um, production and, and publication. And so I sent uh, even before they accepted the book, I sent a note saying, hey, here's my ideas, here's what I'd be willing to do, just to kind of show, you know, yeah, I'm on board, I'm going to do this, show some enthusiasm for that. Um, and after that, they, they agreed to take the book. Um, so I'll just kind of quickly run down the steps from that point to, to where I am now. And then I, I'd really like to open it up for questions because I'm, I'm sure, you know, and, and if anybody else wants to share, you know, each of these stories is very different from each other, so it might be interesting to hear some other stories too. Um, but just quickly, so after the acceptance, uh, there's the contract, which my agent negotiated with them. Um, there are the revisions that I mentioned, uh, changing the ending primarily which, as it turns out, because I'd done so many drafts of this book, I actually basically had that ending already written. <laughs> and so I just had to find it and then kind of, you know, re rewrite it a bit. But um, there was a long publicity questionnaire. So, uh, again, really kind of detailing, giving them all kinds of information about, uh, you know, who you are associated with and that, you know, might help promote the book. And this was a very long questionnaire that I had to fill out. We did quite a bit of back and forth about the cover, um, and they were really great about this. You know, in the contract, the cover is their territory. They have total control over the cover, and that, that's often the case. Um, but they sent me a couple of different drafts of covers that I really didn't like so much, and they, they were willing to work with me on that. They changed it, and now I'm really happy with the cover. Um, there's the look, soliciting blurbs, which is, I find, incredibly painful uh, to do. But um, it's one of those things that, that apparently we have to do. Um, and then proofreading the galley. Um, you know, they sent me the galley. I have to go all the way through it again, make sure everything is uh, ship shape. And then there's, there's moving on to kind of the, the marketing plan and uh, what you're going to do uh, once the book is out. So that's, I've been working on this um, over, you know, over the past 
I don't know, six to eight months uh, setting up events, trying to make contacts with booksellers, um, getting in touch with, with book clubs that might be interested in reading the book, um, uh, pitching other articles or related pieces to other publications to kind of get your name out there, um, being active on social media, another thing I have deeply mixed feelings about. Um, and uh, sending the book out for reviews. So the, the publisher is primarily doing that, but I uh, sent them many, um, uh, you know, a list of ideas of places that it might be good to send the book to. I decided to do a book trailer. This is completely optional and, and uh, for many people not something you might want to do, but a friend of mine had done this with her novel and um, it turned out really well and she, the person she used uh, was does it is incredibly reasonable, um, and it was just sort of another, another angle, another you know tool that that I figured, well, why not? It's it's not that much of an outlay, and maybe it would be good. And then um, then another option is radio, and and actually uh, an opportunity opened up for me locally in in Champaign-Urbana where I live. So. Um, the director of a local community radio station asked me if I would be interested in doing a short weekly, um, what they call a drop-in program, so a five-minute weekly program, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> sounds good to me, because I was, you know, had publicity brain. And so I created this show called The Literary Life, which is uh, this five-minute weekly show, kind of based on, if you ever have heard uh, Garrison Keillor's The Writer's Almanac, it's kind of based on that, um, but focused on Midwestern writers. Um, and so it's a, you know, I give a little brief reflection or introduction of the writer and then read an excerpt of, of the writer's work. And uh, so I've been working uh, on that as well. And I found that to be a really positive thing, even though it's, it's been a lot of work, it's taken a lot of time. Um, but I'm finding that I'm making connections with writers that I never would have made connections with before. Um, and it's, it's kind of building bridges. And um, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. And that's, that's what I wanted to end on. And then, I, then I'll open it up to questions. Um, one thing I didn't really get deeply into, but I think uh, one of the reasons this book took me so long was because in the middle of it, I also came upon, you know, I was sort of, hitting a midlife crisis, I guess, which I won't bore you with. Uh, but, you know, the question of why am I doing this kind of came up. And um, ultimately, for me, you know, I've come around to the understanding about myself that stories are, you know, telling and listening to stories are the way that I am most fully engaged with life and with the world. And um, for me, they are a way to connect with people. That connection is really important to me. And so that's how, you know, the whole publicity marketing angle of getting a book out into the world can, can drag you into this sort of soulless territory. Um, and that's something that I've, I'm constantly trying to push against and to, you know, get back into this area of connection, creation. Um, and so I guess, you know, so far in this process, uh, I feel like this time, in contrast to the previous times, I've been able to strike a fairly good balance with that, that I, you know, reminding myself that this book is about touching others. It's about a gift to others. It's about connection. It's not about me, 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 look at me, you know. Um, and I, I hope that I can continue that as I move into the actual, you know, release and, and getting it out into the world. So, okay, I will stop there, and I would love to hear questions or thoughts. You said that your first books didn't do well. I'm in the same category. Mm -hmm. Can you quantify that for us? <laughs> uh, 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 Numbers? Yes. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, I'm so kind of, it really affected me that I disappointed my publisher. 
<laughs> I think. So I, I kind of blocked it out. I really didn't pay that much attention to the numbers. But I think my first book might have sold around in like the 3,000 territory, and my second book more like 5,000, which for Putnam, and you know, they, I, had, I got a two-book deal. They, they laid out some money for me, and uh, that was not what they were looking for. <laughs> Uh, it has to do with expectations too. I mean, that's another thing. You know, if you're, if that's kind of the downside, I think, of going with some of these, some of these bigger publishers. And if you get a really big advance or even a, a, an advance at all, um, they are. You know, there's a, there's an expectation being set up there, and if you don't fulfill that expectation, they're not going to be happy, and you're going to have this sort of feeling of. Uh, well, shoot, I, I failed, you know, or at least that was my, my take on it. So, um, yeah. How financially involved are you in some way? D did it cost you money to publish, or was it all on the publisher? For those, for the first books, or first, for the first book? two? For the first two? No, no. I mean, there, it's, I don't have to, you never have to pay back the advance, for example. Um, it's just lost money for them. I mean, of course, if you, if you want to quantify, you know, the amount of time you're spending, you know, writing the book and everything, you're pretty financially involved, I guess. But um, no, I, I didn't you pay anything for them to publish it. Could we go back a little bit to one of your last points? where you describe the book as um, your gift uh, to the readers. It's a lovely concept. Just to, could you explore that a little bit further? Um, yeah, let's see. How can I explore that? Um, well, you know, when I struggle with this question of why am I doing this, um, because, you know, I mean, I don't know, I think many of us get into this, especially if we get into it when we're young, because we have this starry-eyed idea of what it is to be a writer, and, and, and we see these big writers who have all these accolades and all this praise, and it looks really great. <laughs> you know, like, wow, I want to be like that. And plus the language, obviously, you know, that what we see and what we read and how we experience the stories is so powerful for us. Um, so, but, you know, when I kind of hit this period of feeling like I'd failed, uh, that went away. I, I realized, oh, that's not going to be me. I'm not going to be one of those big flashy writers. So what am I doing this for then? Um, and that's when I came back around to this, well, I'm doing this because I, for whatever reason, am compelled to do it. And because the way I experience books is as a kind of gift. I mean, if I, if I find a book that I really love, I mean, it's, it's a very important thing in my life. It's a touchstone. It's something I return to. It teaches me how to live in the world. You know, it's a true gift. So that's, that's the real reason, uh, you know, why why I do this work. And sometimes I can forget that and get caught up in this other thing, which is unhealthy <laughs> and unproductive. Uh, but that's you know, why I want to keep returning to that basic um, uh, impulse, I guess. Yeah. Thank you for showing your vulnerability with sharing some of these rejections. Um, it's hard to see, but I think it's really helpful for all of us here. So thank you. I kind of have more of a comment. So um, actually, one of my first grown-up jobs was um, an assistant marketing director for an independent bookstore called Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi. I don't know if you guys know that one. Mm -hmm. Yay. Um, and then I became the, the head marketing director. And um, and that was really over the course of 10 years, and I saw, you know, basically a decline of the marketing budget for the writer. And I think it really puts someone who maybe that isn't their skill set into a 
an awkward position, but um, I do just want to say from my experience, if that's not your forte and it seems like you, you do have this, you know, by, this is a great marketing plan, I think, um, that to tell your story and you, you'll, never, you'll never know who you meet or who you'll be surprised that you know. Um, I'm a bleeding heart, so whenever people tell me what they're working on, I, I quickly start mapping out things for them. So, um, so just don't, don't be afraid to share your story because those resources might be around you and you don't even know it. So I just want to say that in beautiful work there. Thank you. Well, thanks for sharing. Um, I'm just curious, do you get back up to the, the lake uh, where you were? <laughs> because I, I really connected with your passion for, for the place, sense of place, and, and that's what I'm writing about right now, really. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, go, I still go every year, although I, I don't think I'm going to get up there this year, but maybe later in the year. Um, yeah, it's really evolved, this place. You know, when my, my grandparents um, bought the property in the 50s, early 50s, I think, and, um, and then as, as time went on, they kind of added onto it and then sold portions to my grandmother's siblings. So actually now it is all my, my grandmother's siblings, their children, everybody's involved. You know, there's, uh, there's several, it's, I don't know, I think the whole property with everybody uh, is maybe eight acres or something, but there's, there's several different houses. Everybody's got a different timeshare. You know, it's very, very kind of complicated and complex and has taken a lot of effort on the part of my, uh, my extended, extended family to kind of maintain this. Um, but, uh, yeah, I do, I keep going. It's an important place. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> To continue your metaphor with um, conception, labor, and delivery, how, do, how will you know when you're ready for another baby? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I, I, uh, another baby is now with my agent. Um, the, the publishing, pro you know, between the time when this book was accepted and, and the time it's going to be coming out, it's been almost two years, I think. So uh, I wrote a, uh, actually, a young adult novel, my first young adult novel, um, which I just sent to her in May. And now I'm waiting to hear what she thinks. So, so we'll see. Uh, did you ever consider literary memoir for the story, rather than a novel? I didn't. Um, I think I'm afraid of memoir. <laughs> um, no, you know, I didn't want to. Um, I don't know. That didn't pull me. I didn't want to write just about my family for some reason. Maybe someday I will. Someday I might. Um, but. This other thing pulled me this time. Um, I wonder if you could speak to one of the editor's comments. Um, it's not often writer's empathy can extend itself so fully across such a broad canvas. Uh, any tips on that or how you get so close to the characters? I find I can get close to maybe three, and, but there's a whole cast of yeah. people needing more attention. Yeah, that's a very good question, and um, it's something I, I, uh, I, I consider a really high priority in my own work, so um, let's see. I mean, I, I did a lot of, with this book, I was still, uh, I was, it took me a long time to kind of navigate and figure out the point of view, which is an omniscient point of view. Um, and it was the first novel I'd written in an omniscient point of view, so, so that took some learning. Uh, but I did a lot of write, a lot of sort of outside of the book writing, you know, that didn't actually make it into the final draft, but that taught me a lot about each of my characters. Um, that I didn't necessarily know at the time I was doing it was not going to make it in. But, um, you know, as I learned the story and, and got deeper in, I realized, no, that's, that's not going to work, that's not going to work. But, you know, a, a teacher of mine, Elizabeth McCracken, who's a wonderful writer and, and teacher, um, used to say that no writing is ever wasted. And I really believe that's true. You know, you can, um, every story that you teach yourself about each of your characters is going to bring you closer to them 
and help you get inside of who they are. And even if they're not your, pr- your protagonist, your primary character, or, or one of your main characters, that will help fill, out, uh, fill them out and um, you know, give you a, a greater understanding of uh, the world of your novel, its value system, and, um, and of your, your story. I'm really looking forward to reading the book. Um, Could you speak a little bit about your experience of finding and working with an agent and how important you feel that is in the whole process? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. And we have a, there's a glare on the clock, so we have a few more minutes, right? Um, I'll try to be quick about this, but um, I realized in doing this, you know, I already had an agent, so that's a big step that... um, is, is well, it doesn't have to be uh, important for you, but if you're trying to get to a big New York house, you kind of need an agent. Um, many of the smaller presses, you don't. And if you're not concerned with approaching New York, then that's great. Then you, know, you don't necessarily have to worry about it. But uh, as far as finding an agent, um, there are a lot of great resources out there that will give you information about how to do that, you know, practically speaking. I would recommend a Poets and Writers website has a lot of information. They also have a publication, just like a PDF that you can buy for $4.99 that uh, has interviews with agents. It has, um, you know, lots of information in there about kind of how to approach them, what they're looking for, that kind of thing. And now... You know, when I was finding my agent, uh, there was nothing basically available online. Now there's everything's available online, so you can go if if you um, can find a database of agents, which Poets and Writers, among other places, I think Writers Digest also has some a, a lot of information about this. But uh, if you can find a database and you go to the agency's website, there's a lot of information right there about who's there, what they're looking for, how to submit to them. Um, so you can find the information you need, you know, to do that. Um, and then, I mean, in terms of whether or not it's, was that the other part of your question, whether or not it's sort of important? Like I said, I think it depends how you want to publish. Um, an agent, I mean, I'm very grateful to my agent. She, she fights for me. She negotiates contracts that I know nothing about. You know, she, she is an expert in her in her field, and she she coaches me on uh, you know thinking about marketing stuff like that. I mean, she makes connections for me, so she's an incredible resource, definitely. Um, and I'm very grateful to her for sticking with me. You know, I mean, she, very easily she could have said, you know what, sorry, it's just there's no more money in this right now for me, so I'm moving on. But she didn't. Um, not every agent is like that. So I'm s- supremely grateful for her. But it really depends on what you want to do, I think, or you know, what your publishing goals are, I guess. I think maybe one more, and then we'll have to wrap. I saw some hands over here. I do. <laughs> Thank you, first of all. It's beautiful. And very, like uh, one person said, uh, appreciating your vulnerability. I think that's, you know, that's, in a way, it's kind of what drives us all, is this desire to be vulnerable. But then, of course, it's what, of course, pre- presents the most resistance to us as well. So we're, it's a kind of a push-pull. You know. um, it just, it, this was sort of addressed already. That's why I wasn't... Um, as far as the relationship with an agent and even the relationship with editors, um, I know, like myself, I worked at a literary agency back in the 90s in Los Angeles. And I saw, even at that time, I saw a really distinct division and a separation between the way the older agents who had come up in the New York literary scene with the big houses who had maybe, because we were a bi-coastal agency, so Mm. people were like, you know, and it was like they had a totally different approach to working with writers and it was a much more long-term approach. It was much more, they were really invested in the process, you know, over time they gave detailed notes they spent weekends reading drafts they did you know and then there were all the younger agents who basically really like they were well educated and but their approach was much more um, product oriented you know and they really looked at the, the they, they would be very quick to 
to drop one writer for another. And it just, I'm wondering from your experience with that, especially with editors, I mean, do you see that as a valuable relationship anymore or is it something where pretty much writers are on their own? The, the agent, uh, writer relationship or editor? Well, there was a time when the, you, your editor also <laughs> would provide that. and now right. So I'm just curious whether those even exist anymore, those types of relationships. Yeah, I, I mean, in my experience, uh, my rock has been my agent, and my, the editors have come and gone. And, um, I mean, I've had some, some good editors, but often they're moving around from house to house. I mean, like with my first book, my, uh, I had the same editor initially for my first and second book. She bought both books. But then in the middle of, uh, oh, this is true of publicists too. So I had like three different publicists for my first book, you know, and they're all kind of leaving or moving. And then my second book, my editor moved to a different house. She wanted to take the book with her, but they didn't let her. Uh, so I had a new editor and then she left. And at the very at the book's release, I had a new editor. You know, so I mean, I, I yeah, I didn't feel that continuity at all. Um, that's why I mean, I'm I don't know. You know, we'll see what happens with with Red Hen Press, but um, so far, I feel like with this independent press, uh, I'm closer to them. I feel I feel less kind of in the dark. I felt s totally like, what's happening out there with my book? You know, in New York and. With this, with this press, I feel like I can talk to them. They respond to me quickly. You know, there are real relationships there, whereas in the other case, I didn't feel that way. Now, I'm sure that's not true across the board. You probably find some writers who say, oh, no, I've got a great relationship with my editor. And, you know, so I'm sure it just completely varies, but that was my experience. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>